0: it was another moose and it was his rack moving in the woods and it was just so massive, biggest I'd ever seen. And truth be said, biggest anyone's ever seen <laughs> it being the state record and all. So I asked the, the hunter, I said, are you willing to to go after this moose? Cause he was in a position where we couldn't shoot him from there, couldn't engage him. And he said, whatever you want to do. And that was the music to my ears. Right. So where I'm going with the, the physical conditioning and the sustainability is we had to walk a quarter mile, which not that far, but it was a duck walk in an old culvert washout. So we would stay below the brush and be able to get around to get a shot on this trophy. And that 81-year-old man w- was a stud. I mean, he stayed in that position the entire way. Never took a break. That lactic acid was building up in the, in the quads and the hamstrings. And he powered through and got himself in a position where he was able to make that shot and, and make history ultimately.
1: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit sigsauer.com. We're out here with, uh, with Dustin Parent, You just got home from the SIG Hunter Games and you were a range safety officer, Um, but your your role, like your jobs, you're a busy guy. You're all over the place. What do you do?
0: I am a very busy guy. And and I'll tell you, the opportunity I had to be out uh, in Wyoming with the SIG Hunter Games was was awesome. I was very proud and honored to be part of that. Uh, As far as what I do, my main focus is my law enforcement career. I'm in my 19th year. I uh, worked for uh, a town here in central New Hampshire on Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, really enjoyed that. I've had the opportunity to run a patrol narcotics dog for 10 years of that career. Uh, you know, that was cool. It opened a lot of doors to me to travel throughout New England and, and meet some great people when I was doing that. Uh, I also took my career in the role of uh, SWAT. So I was an operator for about 10 years, then team leader, and now I'm the commander of that team. So we're a 26-man operation. Uh, we also have uh, you know, support staff such as CNT uh, negotiations, and uh, I'll tell you, it's it's definitely it's definitely a little overwhelming at times. As starting a family and uh, running my outfitter business as well here in northern New Hampshire and western
1: Maine. Well, before we get into the out, outfitting stuff, um, this is extremely hard times to be in law enforcement, and then maybe even harder. I I don't know for for SWAT and some of the those direct action units and I want I want to personally say thank you for for all the absolute crap that you've had to endure over the last couple of years I know it's not easy and, and you guys are staying out there and being professional I can't thank you enough for that
0: well I appreciate that and I'll certainly pass that along to my brothers and sisters and uh, and I thank you for the service you did in, in the military so uh, kudos as well
1: thanks for that um, tell me about your outfitting business.
0: So I own uh, Northern New England Outfitters with my brother. My brother's 10 years older than me. Uh, we started, this is our 20th season. Uh, so I was pretty young when we started. He, Like I said, he's 10 years older, so he was a little more established. But, uh, you know, it started with uh, kind of a cool story where we grew up in Northern New Hampshire and uh, we're doing some bird hunting and came across a gentleman that had a moose tag and was struggling. And he asked, had we seen any moose? And the two of us kind of looked at each other like, who hasn't? (laughs) He, he, uh, you know, he asked if we would help him and and we did. And it was, it was pretty cool because he handed us 500 bucks as like a thank you. And the light bulb went off and 20 years later, we're uh, pretty grown to be a pretty successful, uh, larger, larger outfitter business, especially for New England.
1: I love that, man. I guided for a long time before I ever like started a business to become an outfitter. And when I did, I had $600 to start the business with. And it started out with just fly fishing. And I actually got loaned, um, some fishing rods from, from Winston, the fly fishing company there in Southwest Montana. And, uh, if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't been willing to like loan me a, a couple of used rods that they had lying around, I never could have gotten started. And then it, it grew into what it is now, which is great. But it's, awesome. it's, it's so fun to start with like really humble and honest origins and then build something out of it.
0: Yes. it's uh, it, You know, my brother and I have come from different walks of life, given where he's technically my half brother. Um, you know, we share the same father uh therefore we didn't grow up in the same home per se but uh definitely different walks especially because he was uh, so much older than me but uh, he does it full-time so this is the only thing he does and i do it full-time yet have a full-time law enforcement career so it's uh it can be tiresome but i'll tell you what the benefits are fantastic you meet some amazing people that are like-minded and share uh, the passion for hunting and fishing so i'm thankful for it every day for sure what
1: species do you guide for?
0: We, we focus primarily on moose, bear, deer, and Turkey. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's tough out here because our moose is, is by far the most fun animal to guide for, but it's all lottery and auction driven. With that said, being as established as we are for as long as we have the opportunity, opportunity to take a lot of the uh, auction hunters out. So, uh, we're, we're doing okay with it.
1: And for the folks that don't know. Um, every state has some kind of auction tag that uh, you know you can basically buy your way into and I will say that the outfitters that consistently end up with those auction hunters are the best outfitters available in the state because typically people who are buying auction tags you know they're they're not folks that are as worried about money as everybody else Um, so they go and they get the absolute best and and that's you so that's awesome.
0: No I I appreciate that I I have tended to to see that as well and in, in not just in our own outfit but other outfits and uh you know those people they come with a certain stigma and i've i i find it to not be always true you know yes they have money uh, but they do love hunting for the most part i'm not saying that there's not that one person that doesn't uh fit the role but they're they're such great people they yes they made right decisions in their life they have a lot of money um, but they share that passion, the same that we do, uh, just, they fly in on a jet and we drive. That's all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think that there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that at all. I actually fly on jets quite a bit. It just happens to be with like two or 300 of my friends every time I go.
0: Touche, <laughs> <laughs> uh, touche. <touché. laughs>
1: so what does a moose hunt in Maine look like?
0: So we were on moose hunts in, in three states, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Uh, it, originally, I started in New Hampshire, did that predominantly, uh, I'd say, first, this is my seventh year in Maine, so the first 13 years, and there used to be a couple thousand tags, and now there's 50. So they've decreased it significantly due to concerns with the ticks, uh, winter tick. However, Maine, much larger state, denser population. Uh, seven years ago we found that to be the direction to go to sustain our business the way that we are accustomed to Um, and then vermont with the same thing they're kind of a supplemental state if you will for moose hunting but uh, we run two different seasons so we have september season which is really cool because it's a rut season Uh, they take place predominantly in the north part so i'll guide in zone one which is up on the canadian border Uh, that zone is just massive massive amounts of land. There's no, uh, there's no commercial at all. There's no buildings. It's just complete uh, great North main woods where miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles of logging roads uh, owned mostly by Irving and some state land, but mostly by Irving. So that September hunt consists of, uh, you know, showing up, you can do a spike camp. I try to find these cabins, uh, to have a you know the hot shower and provide these these amenities that most people are accustomed to on their hunts, uh, but you can certainly count on getting an up close and personal encounter that time of year up in northern Maine. We are uh, you know we're pulling moose into man 10 15 yards sometimes coming in you know looking looking to mate. So it's a it's a lot of fun. The second season is in October and that's down where our lodge is located in western Maine, northern New Hampshire. And uh, that's more hunting the, uh, the old logging wood yards and old, I guess, I don't want to say like uh, fields because they're not fields at all. They're, they're more like plots of land where they logged it and then it grew up into what the moose are feeding on because they're trying to put some weight back on from having been in the rut for, for that last four weeks. So that's more of a spot and stock and basically putting miles on in that October hunt
1: and you run a lot of bear hunts as well right yeah
0: we have we have about 40 bait sites we're running approximately 70 hunts a year Uh, we offer two states uh, so maine and new hampshire you know that i found throughout the country you know people are thinking north carolina jersey those are your real big bears for us you know not to say we don't have the big ones five six hundred pounds but you're a good bear for us Two 300 pounds is, is a nice black bear for us in Maine, New Hampshire.
1: And that's a great bear. Like that, that's very representative of the species and, and even on the top end, like as far as like being honest about a bear's size, there's only a handful of bears in the state of Oregon that are in that 300 pound range. Um, and right. I know, I know you guys have, have exceeded that a lot of times, running 40 baits that is a gargantuan amount of work i don't think people understand how much work that is
0: you know it truly is and we've uh, we've expanded our team uh, since we've started and maine is pretty uh pretty accommodating when it comes to allowing us to hire people to to help us uh if you will uh out, being out west i feel like i'm grabbing the lingo and calling them ranch hands uh my experience at the queen mountain lodge but uh these guys are great and we couldn't do it without them for sure. Cause as you know, that amount of bait, I mean, we're, you got to tend to them at least every other, every third day, uh, depending on, on how active they are, uh, but they all have cameras and they're all up kept, uh, for sure. Some of them have a tree stand. Some of them have a blind, um, you know, but it's, uh, it, you know, it is an immense amount of work. There's no doubt about it. It takes probably six full days to get everything up and running before the season starts.
1: Now, when we are out there in Wyoming, and you were telling me about these bear hunts, there's one thing you told me that that I'm honestly still a little bit upset about, and that is how ridiculously cheap you are. And I I don't even want to say I'm gonna I'm gonna link to your to your website and stuff, but like it is less expensive to go bear hunting with you than it is for somebody to go fishing in Montana. Um, it's really really affordable.
0: It it is, and and you know we know it. That's the thing that. Uh, can be frustrating as we do know it because we're grabbing people from all over the place that that share their experiences and uh, we've kind of taken and amended our model with moose hunting and the reason we can do that is those tags are once in a lifetime right so we're able to market ourselves and help people understand that we are different than the other outfitter right because and this is why and we're not afraid to show them and help them understand but when it comes to bear hunting in Maine that's a it's a a very popular thing amongst the, amongst the outfitter community. And they're just not charging any, we have to compete. So they're not charging the prices that uh, most hunters throughout the country are used to seeing. So we, in order to stay in business, we have to compete with them and uh, you know, it kind of just falls into is what it is category, unfortunately.
1: Well, look, I I respect that you're giving people a great opportunity there that's, you know, really available to a lot of hunters and just to put it into perspective, like an elk tag in Wyoming, it, just the tag is going to be pretty close to a guided bear hunt with, with you. And I, I really encourage people to look into it. It's something that like, I'm, I'm really going to try and find time in my schedule to get out there. Cause I want to hunt with you now that I've got to spend some time with you. Um, I, I think it's just great. a tremendous opportunity. Okay. So you you come from this this elite law enforcement background, SWAT, all of that the leadership aspect of that. You've got a tremendous amount of experience within within your role as a guide and an outfitter, and you you know you're also an instructor at the Sig Sauer Academy, and then you come out to Wyoming to be a range safety officer for the for the first ever Sig Sauer Hunter Games. With with all of that with all that experience, I feel like you're the perfect person to talk to and, um, and tell me about how this event went. And, uh, and I guess let's explain a little bit like what the format was and and who was on your team.
0: Yeah. I, you know, like I said, when you first, uh, introduced me, I, I was, I was just so flattered and honored to go out there and be a part of that. You know, I could tell, although it being the first Hunter games, just by the format, in the manner in which Sig Hour goes about doing their business it was very clear and obvious that this was going to be an outstanding event and it, it was exactly that it was the right amount of challenging it was uh I guess the perfect crowd the perfect group and then all the the leadership that was on the top making sure that this went the direction it, it was supposed to go uh was a home run for sure it was it was awesome uh, I mean Daniel Horner he's I mean, he's a stud, right? There's, there's no way around that. The, the man is, is amazing. And the work he put into setting up this course, uh, I believe we were at about 7.3 miles, uh, 10 different stages throughout the mountains, out behind Queen Mountain. And uh, there were some challenging areas where it needed to be challenging, for sure. And then there were some areas where, you know, it kind of, you, you got a break for a minute. So it was a perfect mix, for sure.
1: Okay, Cool. So who was on your team?
0: So I was blessed with the presence of Cowboy Cerrone, uh, the UFC fighter. He is the all-time winningest uh, UFC fighter. And I'll tell you what, he is uh, a card. He is an awesome guy to be around. I had so much fun, and I'm not sure I ever laughed that much in the woods. Uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I, had, I just had such a great time hanging out with him. Uh, I had the uh, strength and conditioning coach, one of the uh, – strength and conditioning coaches in the ufc bo sandoval he is uh he's also a stud man he's got such a great personality and he was he was a breath of fresh air to be around because coming uh from the outside and i say as a commoner myself these guys are in the spotlight uh, quite often and it was un- unexpected what uh w- what it was going to be like and i was just i was blown away by uh, their humility for sure they were great guys uh my third our elite guide was Mike Kimmel, the python cowboy out of Florida. Uh, the fact that there's a man out there that makes a living wrestling pythons and uh, shooting iguanas is fascinating to me. So this guy, <laughs> this guy had my attention right away before I even met him. And uh, he is absolutely the real deal for what he does. He is super knowledgeable, uh, very enthusiastic, and, and he was a great asset to the team for sure. We had a, we had a good time.
1: So there's definitely a connection between um, Cowboy Cerrone and Bo Sandoval. You know, Bo's trained cowboy and um, he's trained a lot of UFC fighters, knows how to speak that language. But throwing throwing uh, Trapper Mike into the mix there, that's that's kind of a curveball. You know, that that's way outside of what he normally does. And um, and then so how did they come together as a team? You know, Mike is sort of yeah. in the role as as one of Sega Elite Guides. So if he's the guy that that we've trained with this rifle and and stuff like that. Um, but Cowboy has hunted and 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 Bo I think has hunted and, and has shot a little bit. So how did that all come together? What was that team dynamic like?
0: You know, it, and I, I I felt the same way. So prior to going out uh, to Wyoming for the Hunter Games, I did my research and and was trying to figure out what that dynamic was going to be like the best I could based on the research I could find on the internet. Um, but none of that was able to prepare me for for how it actually played out. <laughs> uh, truth be told, so these guys, you know, we're talking one of the most badass UFC fighters of all time, right? And then there's there's Python Cowboy. Yeah, he wrestles pythons, but this is a, can be an intimidating uh, duo, if you will. But they they fell together, man. I'll tell you. It wasn't long and they were setting up trips to go hunting with each other and uh, the the camaraderie when they were participating in this event, just working with each other, making sure they were each squared away and uh, how, to hit, how to be successful, making the shots, sharing information. They were just, I mean, they didn't miss a beat. These guys are going to be friends for life. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I saw them exchange information and uh, setting up trips to go down there and and shoot iguanas on golf courses you know that's uh that's something that Cowboy is interested in for sure you know and the other thing that I would like to mention is Cowboy he's uh he's such a cool dude like he's setting he has camps for kids at his ranch uh, the uh, BMF ranch in New Mexico he's got uh, something going on uh, pretty soon here and you have to look at his uh his Instagram for the exact details but I just thought it was really cool. He's doing uh, like a shooting camp and uh, a summer camp for kids. And him and uh, Mike were talking about that together on how they can kind of collaborate something in the future to do it together. So uh, definitely some camaraderie being had out there during the hunter games.
1: So how, how did it go on the course of fire? Because the, the way we place these targets, they're not easy to find. You've got to hunt for these targets.
0: Yes. So their plan uh, which I thought was pretty effective, actually, was the, they were going to set up and I'm not sure what the audience knows for as far as the, uh, the layout for the hunter games, but how it works is there's 10 stages, there was a green flag at the beginning of the stage. Once you got the okay, by means of a cannon going off, you could advance past this green flag, there was another flag, and there were various distances on each of the stages. And that flag was red and you couldn't advance past that. So you're able to walk and search for your targets within the two flagged areas. So they broke up those areas into thirds and looked for their target. Once the target was located, they decided that Mike was going to be the first shooter. Python Cowboy, Trapper Mike, however we're referring to him, he was our first shooter. We found him. He was going to be our strongest link to the team. So he set up. Got ready, figured out what position that he and the rest of the team were going to shoot in, whether it be kneeling, standing prone, uh, whatever the, the particular rules, uh, you know, allowed them to do on that particular course of fire. And then Bo and Cowboy would proceed into the latter two thirds of that uh, flagged area and try to find the remaining targets that were there.
1: And then how did that go? Were they able to, to locate those targets pretty quickly or did they yeah. have to really hunt for them?
0: They, you know, they did locate them. Uh, There was, I can remember too, where they struggled a little bit uh, to find them. And I think they located them probably with about seven minutes left, which meant they had to, uh, you know, get all their, all 18, or as it was, be nine shots off on this final target uh, within seven minutes. So they, they learned quick because the very first stage of the very first day none of them shot the second target none really? zero shots were fired yes <laughs> so as the range safety officer i reminded them of the time that they had left of the 15 minutes so that's pretty crucial to let our our viewers know here that they have 15 minutes to locate and engage all targets and two of the 10 had three targets and the other eight had two targets and the competitors all had to shoot three shots each at each of the targets. So for instance, two targets at a stage, that would be nine shots fired per team at each targets, 18 shots total. So on the very first stage, they located the target. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about positioning and how exact, who was going to go first. So there, it was a little bit of chaos, little chaotic there, uh, which, ended up with that second target never being engaged at all. So let's just say the walk between stage one and stage two, there was a little more gaming going on between that team. They were gelling up.
1: Yep. And I, I saw you guys when you're leaving stage one and, and going to your, your stage two starting out that first day and everybody kind of had a look on their face, like this might be harder than what we signed up for. But people got yeah. better. every team got better as it went. you know they they kind of learned where Dan and I were hiding targets, um, they learned what to look for, and uh, everybody got a lot faster from that point forward.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And you know from a that was our first fifteen minutes together, and I'll tell you it was it was super cool to see the competitiveness of Cowboy come out because he did not accept or like the fact that. They, didn't, they ran out of time and did not get to engage that second target. So he, he kind of took the reins and said, hey, look, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And, uh, and they moved forward, and it was, it was pretty cool. The three of them came together quite nicely after that.
1: What did the targets look like?
0: So they were various different uh, big-game animals. We had anything from sheep to elk to whitetail deer to mule deer. Uh, there was a mountain lion out there. There was uh muskox, I believe I saw, which was quite uh quite funny on an inside story. Stage three, I believe, had a muskox and uh, uh cowboy saw it and called it as a turkey. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the rest of the uh the competition, that was the turkey stage that those guys had to engage at that, that target. So that was pretty funny. Uh, there was a there was a few brown bears out there. There was uh, moose out there there was all basically any any large game animal that you're going to find in in the united states was out there on that course so it was, it
1: was cool and then did they get points for hitting the target anywhere like at an archery competition or did they only get points for a specific shot
0: that's a great question and uh it, it actually was not like an archery shoot they weren't the the 3d uh foam targets they were more of a uh, print if you will of the animal with that said, MGM, I mean, they, those guys, they provided the steel and the steel cutout was as best, they, as best it could be of the vital area that you would uh, take an ethical shot on a big game animal. So you had a print that was of the animal, very lifelike, and then there was a steel vital shape. Uh, p- there was a vital shaped piece of steel in front of that uh, print that allowed the shooter to know where they were supposed to be aiming. And the one thing you guys did you and Daniel did that I thought was really cool was put the uh that red light on the uh on the edges of the vitals, so when it was hit, a red light went off and kind of gave that satisfaction along with the noise of the steel being hit but hey, it's like a an arcade game you you made your shot and that light went off, so it was pretty it was pretty cool
1: something that's that's always my whole life bothered me about these archery competitions is that they give you some points. For hitting something in the butt or the guts or the hoof or whatever, and I, I don't like that. I feel like that should be negative points if anything. So something that was really important to me with this event was that you hit something in the lungs or or you got nothing on that stage.
0: Right. No, I, I think that was uh, well thought out and and definitely is a good idea. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And the the exact format for these hunter games where. As I alluded to, they get three shots. That very first shot is worth three points. The second shot is worth two. And the third shot is worth one. So the the shooter, I liked it because it's some of the stages, their heart rate was still up from the uh from the trek from stage to stage. But there was also that uh that adrenaline rush of uh the first shot, the nerves, if you will, right? So you needed to make that first shot in order to get uh, to get at least 50% of the mo- the possible points on that particular stage so it was it was well thought out I, I liked it a lot
1: and by by the time it was over after day 2 like the top four teams you know the the top team was up by a bit but then teams 2 3 and 4 they were within a handful of points like they were yeah a couple first round impacts changes everything
0: There's no doubt about that. They, uh, there were some, some pretty skilled competitors out there and it was fun to watch them at dinner when those score sheets came out a little bit of trash talking going on for sure. Um, but, uh, those guys, those guys definitely could feel it. They could feel number two, number three, number four on their heels. Yeah. Like you said, they were up by a little bit, but it was theirs to lose. There's no doubt. You gotta, you gotta make those shots. And, and I'll tell you day two, we were faced with 25, 30 mile an hour winds on the back side of that uh, course. So it, it it could have went either way. There's no doubt about it.
1: So from, from your perspective, do you feel like, you know, this was realistic for hunting as much as it could be within the, uh, a competition format. Did they come out here with skills that they can use to, to become better shooters while they're hunting?
0: Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, I, You know, that was a lot of the conversation that I had with the team that I had was, you know, a lot of people train just on the range, standing there, maybe on a bench. It's not very realistic, right? So they had to get themselves into positions and use trees and use their pack and just anything that was available to them to get that shot. And that feeling of being timed is a real life thing. So as you know, that animal is not going to stay there all day right? So you need to be able to have a game plan ahead of time based on the terrain that you're faced with to, to put yourself in a position where you're going to be as successful as you possibly can be. And that certainly was a lesson that they brought away from that. There's there's no doubt. I mean, I actually caught sidebar conversations uh, during the trek in between stage to stage on terrain on saying, if there was a target here, they would lay here, they would use this rock. And, and I thought that was pretty cool because they were starting to apply the you know what they were doing to real life scenarios
1: that's awesome man i'm I'm really glad to hear that and that was another one of my goals is that everybody would come away with this with a better understanding of of how to shoot from these d- dynamic positions because it is easy to go to the rifle range and just lay down on the bench and make sure your gun sighted in everything's working right and um, and then a lot of guys just throw it in their in their gun case and leave and then they go hunting with it but right. there, there's a skill deficit within hunters, very much so myself included, about how to build positions. And people within the three gun community, within, um, within the military sniper community, um, law enforcement, all that, you know, they get some formal training for how to build positions in weird spots. But hunters and
0: sustainability,
1: yeah. Hunters really just have to rely on their experience to do that. And chances are they're only shooting in the field once or twice a year. If that, you don't really ever get the breadth of experience that you need to become competent at all these different shooting positions. Um, So I feel like this sort of showed everybody, hey, you know, we've got some room to improve and, and this is a step in that direction. I definitely have a lot of room that I need to improve in this category as well.
0: Oh, there's no doubt, James. I, uh, you know, I may have had more experience than, than the people on my team, but to say that I didn't learn anything from them while I watched them fight through these different situations, uh, would be uh false because I absolutely took something away from watching these guys compete and uh, figure out how to make this work and stuff that never crossed my mind. Some positions I saw them get in. I was like, Hey, that's really cool. You know, I, I watched them drag, uh, the Yeti cooler over to the uh, the wood platform on one of the shooting stages because they wanted a place to sit. That's thinking outside the box, right? I was like, hey, it's there, use it, right? So they they were they were definitely open minded to figure out how to get themselves into a situation uh, or a position that it yes, most times dynamic, but is it sustainable? Because they need to get those three shots off. And the same thing out in the field, we could be faced with. You know, how many times have you uh, been in an encounter with an animal and and dropped to a knee and it feels like five hours you've been sitting there because your leg's asleep and you're just not in a sustainable position. Whereas have you had that experience? You knew, well, all right, I'm not going to put myself in that situation because I know it's not sustainable for the amount of time I potentially could have to be here.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, me and my my buddy, Kyle, were sneaking up on uh, this pond that had some ducks in it in, uh, in Montana one time. And we got there with the idea of throwing some decoys out. Um, but we got there a little bit late. It was still dark. Um, and this thing was loaded with birds, hundreds of birds. So we're like, okay, just hold tight and we'll wait until shooting light. And then we're going to jump them and shoot them. And both of us, for some bizarre reason, ended up in like this hunker squat where we were just frozen and these birds could see us and you know we waited 10 minutes and then shooting light and both of us tried to get up to shoot a shooting light and neither of us could you know our legs weren't working anymore so even something as simple as that is like understand you may have to be in the spot for a while while you're waiting for this animal to come out from behind a tree or stand up or or do something that affords you a shooting opportunity
0: right and i'll tell you the other thing that comes to mind is uh, is your physical conditioning right yeah um, I'll yeah. tell you, you you tell me that story and it and it brings back memories I had the I had the opportunity to guide the all-time state record in New Hampshire at 68 and a half inches wide and wow. the hunter yeah it was it was you know I'm still I feel so fortunate to be part of that day and this guy was an awesome awesome person a great human being he was 81 years old and you know we we spotted these moose in and you know a long story very short is we approached up on these moose and there was a a nice trophy out there and he got set up on his sticks and as i was glassing for impact i saw what looked like the forest to move the entire forest move behind this nice bull and i'm like holy cow man it it was another moose and it was his rack moving in the woods and it was just so massive biggest i'd ever seen and truth be said biggest anyone's ever seen (laughs) it being the state record and all so i asked the the hunter i said are you willing to to go after this moose because he was in a position where we couldn't shoot him from there could engage him and he said whatever you want to do and that was the music to my ears right so where i'm going with the, the physical conditioning and the sustainability is we had to walk a quarter mile which not that far but it was a duck walk in an old culvert washout. So we would stay below the brush and be able to get around to get a shot on this trophy. And that 81 year old man was a stud. I mean, he stayed in that position the entire way, never took a break. That lactic acid was building up in the, in the quads and the hamstrings and he powered through and got himself in a position where he was able to make that shot and, and make history ultimately. So it's uh it's certainly something to think about his conditioning.
1: That's an amazing story, dude. I, I'm convinced increasingly that if you want to accomplish something that nobody else has ever done, you have to be able to, to do things that nobody else is willing to do. Gary Rice, right? Yeah. That's and if, his word. If, uh, if you think that duck walking a quarter mile is no dramas, <laughs> man, carve a little time out of your schedule and go do it and report back because I think you're going to be crippled before you get there.
0: Yeah, it's tough for sure
1: 68 and a half inch moose in maine are you kidding me that was in northern new hampshire that was in new hampshire wow yeah yeah 68 and a half inches huge unbelievable i mean i'm going to the alaska peninsula moose hunting this year Uh, you know those are the biggest moose in the world if i find a moose that's 68 inches that's going to be an incredible accomplishment there now we're talking about new hampshire that's just amazing
0: you know, and the, the irony behind that statement you made is when I, uh, when I met the hunter that took that moose, that first day in my truck in the morning before light, I said, you know, just to recap, what are your expectations of your hunt? And he said to me, well, I went on an Alaskan Yukon moose hunt and I shot one 68 inches wide. I'd like one bigger than that. And I kind of just looked at him with a pale face. And he's <laughs> like, <"I'm," laughs> he goes, I'm just kidding. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. Right. Yeah. That's we don't, we don't have many of those. And, uh, you know, (laughs) two days later we shot one 68 and a half and I looked at him and said, Oh, it looks like you achieved your, your goals here, sir. And, uh, he was thrilled. So it was cool. I I might've been more happy than him, but he was definitely happy.
1: (laughs) That's such an amazing thing. And that's an important lesson that, that guides need to have is talking with their clients about their expectations. And, you know, I do it all the time, especially with fishing clients, you know, at the, at the truck in the parking lot, I say, how would you define success today? Because everybody's different. And as a young guide, I just tried to give people the trip that I would want to have, you know, as a more experienced guide, I try to give people the trip that they want. And if they say, you know what, I want to catch a 28 inch rainbow trout today. Like, you know what? That's really cool. There aren't any of those here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like, let's, let's recalibrate a little bit because if we didn't have that conversation, they would be wanting that all day long and they would come away disappointed. But now we can, we can kind of start over and be like, okay, this is what we do have. We can try and catch the biggest fish in the river or we can try and catch the most fish possible or, or, you know, we can try and work on an aspect of, of your casting or, or hook setting or skill, anything like that. But what we cannot do is catch something that does not exist. And, I mean, good on you for, for telling that guy that that what he was asking for was, was impossible. Like, the, I probably yeah. would have said, I'm sorry, that, that's not going to happen. Like, maybe we should talk about a 50-inch moose. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you... You just said, hey, it's, it's possible, but it's unlikely. And then you went out and did it. That's, that's an, just an incredible guidance story. I don't think people will really understand just how much pressure that is.
0: Yeah, the, I'll tell you where the, the pressure is, is when people have those expectations, there's no doubt. And then as a guide, uh, you know, a, a little look into the guide life, as you know, is, you know, when these people start investing the amount of money they do. Right. So you have a guy who spent $35,000 on a moose hunt. You know, that's the big leagues, right? You're talking, we need to perform and and really get a great understanding of each other of what his expectations are to kind of echo what you were talking about. Uh, You know, and hopefully those conversations are had prior to the first day of the hunt. Um, But I, I can't say enough, especially having been exposed. Uh, to Wyoming, because I'm back east, Uh, you know, here and there, the physical limitations of the hunter uh, can certainly dictate a lot of times their success or uh, the size of the animal they get the opportunity at at oftentimes too.
1: Yep, that's very true. You know, the only thing that I would add to that is that a lot of guys work really hard to get in extremely good shape for a Western hunt, and they focus on hiking, on on carrying weight. Sometimes they will get to the point where all they th- wanna do is hike. and right. And you have to remember that this is a capability, not a necessity. So just because you can hike all day long does not mean you should. One of the hardest things to do for a lot of people is to sit down and stay in one spot and glass all day long. And maybe move 100 yards and, and do it all over again. But that takes a, a type of, of mental conditioning that is also really hard to develop. Well, it makes sense.
0: And I, I agree with you 100%. That I think you, the way you explain that, it couldn't be any better. It's uh, having the ability to do it when it's time is, is what's crucial. But you, know, you need to trust in your guide that they're putting you in the spot where the moose are because we've already done the homework. Yeah. Or in your case, the elk or whatever it is that the species you're going for. Uh, but I, I agree with that. And I, I use the phrase a lot with my hunters. It's a, I tell them it's a lot like Novocaine. If you give it time, what we're doing will work. You will ultimately uh, be successful because I've done my homework and we are in their bedroom. We are where they live. And sometimes, like you said, it takes some time. You need to stay there. Uh, but should he come out in an area or that animal come out in an area where we aren't, but we can see them. Now that's where that physicality comes in. We need to be able to get there, uh, you know, somewhat double time or do that, uh, the dreaded duck walk, whatever it might be. But uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly, just going out there walking aimlessly because you can, is not a very sound uh, hunting technique.
1: Absolutely. Well, okay. So now, now I need some advice. Um, getting ready for this moose hunt this fall. What should I be doing physically? Cause you you're a physical specimen, man, man. You look like you're carved out of marble. Um, what should, <laughs> what should I be doing to get ready for this Yukon moose hunt this fall?
0: So I can only give you the advice that I have experience in. Now I understand it's going to be different terrain for you. Uh, for us, we are hunting in the, and you can, you can maybe overlap some of the advice for what you're exposed to, but we are walking in a lot of terrain where there's we call them blowdowns where the the loggers have left the tops of trees. So with that said that means you need to be able to lift your feet up. You can't shuffle your feet, right? So you need to be able to lift your feet up and actually walk and that hurts hurts people's hip flexors, hurts their quads, things like that that they you cannot condition if you're just out walking, right? So I tell people the stair stepper is something that's going to condition them physically to get them ready for what they're going to do because let's be honest if your hip flexors hurt you're going to be thinking about that you're not going to be thinking about what you should be thinking about when you're on a hunt of a lifetime like you're doing so i think there's a lot of value to putting in that work at home so you can enjoy your hunt and be more successful um you know we talk sig sour the bdx right I, I know you're going to be running the the cross hopefully in a long action but you're going to be running the bdx system that is huge now the amount of time and effort that someone puts into their firearm because that's the hunter's job right yes as a guide i'm making sure that you're not on 30 power when you should be on two i will do that i will check that often (laughs) but it's your job to make that shot and understand how your system works are you connected is your range finder connected are your kilo 3000 binoculars connected that's going to be your job right so I understand you're in a situation personally where that's not as much a concern as it might be for the other guy because you are a SIG ambassador and, and you're quite savvy with that system. But for anyone else listening, that might be going on a, on a hunt and picks up a system like that. Let's not make your hunt the only the second day that you uh, you played with it. You know that's going to be crucial for sure.
1: Sure. So have good technical proficiency with whatever gear you bring. And, and that's a great point. I see guys come out for hunts all the time that have some really Gucci equipment and they don't know how to use it. So it doesn't do any good. Like it, it's completely useless if, if you're not right. familiar with it and comfortable with it. And then uh, yeah, getting hip flexor strong. That's a great point. That's something that I've never really focused on training for a hunt before. And it's something that always hurts on a hunt. That's a really good yeah. point.
0: Yeah. The, uh, and pay attention to what the guide tells you to bring. There might be something <laughs> specific, that, you know, to the area that he's in that, uh, is, is very important. I can think to like, I think of the Turkey hunts. I do a lot of Turkey hunts, uh, with clients and, and, you know, I'm thinking back to that sustainability and positions and with your duck story being like, how many times have you been calling a bird or working a bird and the hen comes in first and you got to stay as quiet and still as can be. And, you know, and I had on the gear list, bring a thermosel, right? And the guy didn't bring a thermosel because he says, I'm not affected by bugs. Well, now you're moving and the hen sees you and you lose your opportunity, you know, and it's the same idea. So just be cognizant of what the guide has on his gear list. There's a reason he's telling you to bring it. And the worst case scenario is you don't use it, you know, but at least you have the option if, if uh, you're faced with a situation that calls for that particular piece of gear.
1: Yeah. I I agree with that piece as well. Like, you know, on, on these day trips and shorter trips um, I tell people to bring weather appropriate clothing um, with the hopes that that means that they're going to look at the weather and they're going to dress for it for whatever makes them comfortable. But if it's an, if it's an expedition trip, I'm going to give them the list of all the things that I use specifically for that trip. And I've landed on this list from decades of using the wrong things and like everything I'm using right now is very much on purpose like there's a reason that I said you know this jacket this brand these boots um, like this quality of gear because less than that can result in a failure that causes the failure of the entire trip
0: yes I agree that's uh, that's spoken from experience that's there's no doubt about that I've had the same thing and everything I use, there's a reason for it, you know, and I try, uh, I try explaining. I'm I'm fortunate enough to be on the Sitka ambassador team and talking about, you know, building different, uh, jackets and things. And I try explaining for me, hearing a moose grunt is the very first moose grunt is super important, right? So that allows me to, to basically set up and it'll dictate the outcome of this hunt. Well, if the material on my hat is rubbing on the material on my collar just for me simply moving my head to try to listen, and it's creating that ambient noise, that's a problem for me. So I need to have very quiet gear when I'm hunting the rut because I need to hear that very faint moose grunt uh, in order to set up and put ourselves in a position to be successful. As, as minute and small as the material of my hat and collar is, it's, uh, it's crucial to the hunt.
1: Dude, I know that pain so well. And it's similar with elk, right? I'll, you know, let out a cow call or bugle or whatever. And then I'm going to sit there and listen for five minutes. And my hearing is not all that great as it is. I've been around guns and tanks and explosions for a long time. And uh, I need to really be able to listen. So if I call and then my client is right next to me, like opening up a fruit snack or shuffling around his feet or, you know, doing the river dance on, on some pine cones. It sends me thermonuclear right now. And I'll like try and run away from them. Like if you guys, if you need to make all that noise, just do it over there. And then they'll, you know, of course they'll come follow you. And it's like, Oh gosh, like, how do I be polite yeah. and tell you to like, stop moving. Right. That's funny. That's uh,
0: that hits home for me. because <laughs> I've been in that boat. Like I'm, I'll even, I'm to the point now having done it for, for this long to tell them when I stop. Do what you need to do. Whenever I'm calling, that's that's quiet time. In the, in the well, we'd be quiet when that happens. it's funny. It's uh, it sounds like out west and back east. It's it's all the same world. We're doing all yep. the same things.
1: Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, a, a little bit different venue, but a lot of similarities. Yeah, no doubt. Good well, stuff. Dustin, uh, how can people how can people follow you and and follow what you're doing?
0: So. I'll tell you, James, like I said, I I was highly motivated at the conclusion of my experience at the Hunter games, talking to, to yourself, talking to a lot of the guys that uh, were competitors there with regard to social media. Right now we are on uh, Facebook, Northern New England Outfitters and guides. Uh, We have a website, northernnewenglandoutfitters.com. But we are in the process of creating Instagram and a YouTube channel. I'm going to, uh, I think we're going to go the route of, of hiring someone to manage that for us. And uh, you know, the only way I can explain it is uh, that's probably our biggest mistake as a business. Uh, We have all these, this content and amazing video and pictures and experiences, and we have failed to share it with, with other people. And uh, uh, that is our, our fault. So keep an eye out in the future for us. We're going to, we're going to try to get out there and meet the rest of the world here in the, in the, real short short distance here we'll see how it goes
1: well that sounds good man and, and once you kind of get that stuff up and running let me know and I'll, I'll help you with it help you with anything I can and you know if I can do any aspect of my job right you're going to be charging like three times as much for bear hunts in a couple of years as you are right now
0: awesome I, I, I hope so I appreciate <laughs> it
1: all righty <laughs> sir well, look, stay safe out there. Um, again, thank you so much for your service as a law enforcement officer and and for leading your men the way you do. And thank you very, very much for coming out and uh, and representing SIG and doing such a good job as a safety officer out at the Hunter Games. It was it was really cool to get to meet you, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to the days when when you and I get to hunt together on on your side of the country or mine.
0: Awesome, thanks, James. I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. Stay buddy.
1: well. Take care. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley Thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And we'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.